0: It's great to see you today. Can I say it? Can I say happy Halloween? Is it okay to say that in church? I mean, it is Halloween, and I hope that you are at least reasonably happy today. So happy Happy Halloween. We, we've had this tension for a long time in our Christian subculture, what to do with Halloween. I'm going to talk about that just a little bit today. Uh, But before we do that, I want to share something that I'm pretty excited about personally with you and kind of challenge you to join us in this as well. Okay, so today is Halloween, uh, which falls on, last hour I wanted to say September so bad, I don't know why, October 31st. October 31st, every year, Halloween, right? Which makes tomorrow what? November 1st. It's not a trick question. Tomorrow is November 1st which launches uh, men across the world everywhere gear up and get excited about this opportunity. It's No Shave November. That's what tomorrow is, all right? The whole month of November, No Shave November. This is a challenge we're issuing to the men. Now, maybe, you know, I don't know if you've studied up on this before, but... um, this comes from prostate awareness, a prostate cancer awareness, and I've got some uh, guys in my family that, uh, you know, have wrestled with this. And so maybe you're doing it for somebody kind of to bring awareness to this. Or there's nothing wrong with just some good old-fashioned silliness and fun. So the men of uh, Venture, we're calling you to No Shave November. I told my wife Dawn this and her immediate reaction was, well, what about the ladies? And then the conversation devolved to armpits and legs and I'm just not comfortable talking about that from the platform today, so ladies, you join us at whatever level you feel like you'd like to, but for the men of the church, let me just say this, if you want, if I'm, what I'm talking about, if this teases something out inside you and you just kind of want to let it go, uh, join us on social media today for specific instructions on how to be a part of this, let me just say this, there are prizes at the end of the month, so... I'm fishing and reeling you in with that right there. I plan to join really just for the opportunity to not have to drag a razor across my face for a whole month. I'm pretty excited about that. All right, today is Halloween and we're going to dive in. I, I've never done this before, but I'm preaching a sermon on Halloween. I've never done that before. Today is kind of a new thing for me here. And I've always had a love-hate relationship with Halloween. There's a lot of things I love about Halloween. When the kids were little, our kids were little, I loved the whole dress up and see them excited about dress up. And then we go out into the neighborhood. And if your neighborhood is anything like my neighborhood, there are people every year on Halloween that live in my neighborhood that I meet them for the first time. It's like the entire neighborhood just kind of pours out and people are out there. Don't be one of those weird Christian people that turn your light off and shut the door and are mean to kids. No, no, no. Just, this is an opportunity to step into our culture is looking to connect. Here's a great opportunity for us to do it. I've loved that about Halloween. Halloween. I loved some of the costumes my kids have come up with. One of my sons, when he was a little boy, first, second grade probably, he wanted to be Johnny Appleseed for Halloween. I think he had heard about this at school, and he had seen probably a drawing of what Johnny Appleseed was supposed to look like. And so he got like a saucepan from uh, underneath the cabinet, put it on his head. And and we're literally at a front door of like a 20-something-year-old guy. He opens the door, and he goes, "Ah, I know what you are. You're a pothead. And Don and I looked at each other, and that's not what we were aiming at. Oh, no, what have we done? I like that about Halloween. Kind of silly. Kind of being fun. Uh, when I was a kid. I think uh, I would be canceled today for my second-grade costume. My mom was the room mom, Mrs. Guyon's second-grade class, Cobden, Illinois. And uh, she dressed up. I had uh, my youngest brother had not been born yet, so I think there were three of us at that point, which was a brilliant opportunity for us to be the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. If you've studied Columbus, you know what that's all about. And I remember walking the hallways at the school and all the teachers kind of oohing and on over the creativity of that outfit. I remember just think of that's kind of cool. This is what I love about Halloween. Love-hate relationship, though, right? Remember? I, I, I uh, m- With my family about two weeks ago, we did fall break like many of you did. And, and I don't know if you know this about our family, but Don and I launched our ministry in Las Vegas, of all places. Our first year of marriage was in Vegas, and we fell in love with God's church. My call to ministry, in a lot of ways, happened out in Las Vegas. We've got lifelong friends out there. You know the kind of friends that you call family Friends that are really more like family, we've got friends like that out there. And so we watch for cheap airline tickets, and Dawn does this all the time. She was scanning, you know, those kind of tickets. The cool thing about having friends in Vegas that you can stay with is that you can buy tickets to Vegas for real cheap, like 40 bucks round trip or something silly like that. She found tickets like this. We said, hey, let's go, let's, be th- let's do this. We were out there for like three days. We hiked some incredible hikes out in creation. We saw some amazing things. But our kids had this interest of seeing the touristy stuff that usually we avoid like the plague when we go out there to visit. So we went down one night. We're on the strip and we saw some touristy stuff. And uh, my son was teasing me about this later because you can't see what's right behind him in this photograph. But I kind of zoomed in on this picture. (laughs) My, uh, My dreams have been haunted the last two weeks by that image right there. For two weeks, that has bothered me. You know, they say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I don't like that about Halloween. But what I do like about this message is not everything that happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. The next morning, I got up. Early in the morning, and I went out. This is actually Las Vegas Boulevard. It's the strip, the world-famous strip. And I'm sitting there. I've got my coffee. And I did some sermon prep right there on the strip. Actually, this sermon some of it was birthed in some of the things that I experienced and I felt in those moments, including this moment. Right before that picture that I took there, I walked, I had to walk through a casino to get there. You can't walk into a building in Nevada anywhere right now without wearing a mask. It's kind of a statewide mandate. But the casino, this is like 6 30 in the morning, and it's crowded. It's packed. There are people sitting in there probably feeding an addiction. I don't mean to judge, but I think some of them at 6.30 in the morning, there might have been some addiction at play there. You know, pulling the slot machines, doing the gambling. And I stood there. The song that came over the loudspeaker system, Van Halen, Running with the Devil. You know that song? And I'm listening to that song, and I'm looking around, and I've got to confess to you, my pastor's heart in that moment We rode a crowded plane to get here and I'm sitting in a crowded casino right now and at the same time I'm talking with my peers all over the country that are mourning used to be crowded spaces for churches and we're not packing them in right now like we were two years ago. And I was looking at that contrast and I felt some grieving in my pastor's heart in that moment. Today the title of the message is sinners and saints. I thought a lot about that continuum when we were out there walking around in Vegas. Sinners and saints. I don't know about you, but the way I was raised in my conservative Christian subculture, we tend to think of that as a spectrum. Like maybe on one end, you've got your sinners. And then on the other end, you've got your Saints. And some of you right now, as soon as I put that up on the screen, some of you, you put yourself on that scale. Where are you? Between one and ten, sinner and saint. I think there's some misconceptions here. We come by it honestly, but this is what I want to wrestle through together with you today because I actually think that's the wrong continuum to look at. Rather, I think it looks more like this. The cross of Christ Forget the 1 and the 10. But the closer I can get to living right there in the sweet spot, the closer I can get to living with and close to the cross of Christ. From the moment I made the decision to ask Jesus to be Lord and Savior of my life and the rest of my life, spoiler alert, when I live close to that cross, I'm a saint. So are you. We're going to talk about that a little bit more today. That idea of sinners and saints, oh my goodness, I Googled that. It's all over Christian subculture. The best one that I found, uh, not Christian subculture, but culture at large. There's a bakery in Venice, California that's called Sinners and Saints, and this is their tagline. Sinners and Saints offers dessert options for everyone. Saints desserts are gluten-free and sinners desserts are not. Is it possible that we've trivialized the idea of sinners and saints? I think so. I would say it this way I think there's a fine line between sinners and saints. This is what I mean by this. I think it's the cross of Christ, the fine line between sinners and saints. For example, I am a saint. If you've asked Jesus to be Lord and Savior of your life, so are you. We're going to unpack the whys behind that here in a minute. But um, while I'm a saint, I don't know about you, but I I still struggle with sin. There's a fine line between sinner and saint. And here's the beautiful thing. Through the cross of Christ, when he looks at me, when God looks at me, he does not see my sin. He looks through the blood of Jesus on the cross. That's how I get to be a saint. We're going to unpack that. We're going to take a whole sermon to do that. But first, let's talk about today, what it's all about. Halloween. Halloween, if you're taking notes, write this down. It's also known as All Saints' Eve. You can Google this. I won't bore you with a history lesson. But there is kind of some stuff at play here. I would say that for the last 1,000 years, at least, as Christians, our Christian subculture has been wrestling with what do we do with Halloween? What do we do with that fine line between sinners and saints? You know, uh, about, uh, oh, 1,000 years ago in the ninth century, the Catholic Church established a day to commemorate all saints. It's called All Saints Day, November 1st, the beginning, of course, of No Shave November. I think in the ninth century, nobody was shaving anyway, right? But All Saints Day is November 1st, so November 31st became All Saints Eve. And you can Google this yourself, but there's all kinds of history surrounding Halloween, and was it a pagan holiday? Of course it was. And it usually centered around bringing in the harvest and looking forward to the next six months of darkness and winter and kind of had a hyper-focus on death. It's discouraging even saying that out loud that we're getting ready to step into winter. But there's been this tension between what do we do with Halloween? How do saints and sinners how do they interact? And this is what I want to wrestle with you a little bit today on All Saints Eve. So I want to spend some time talking through a definition of saints, and then we 're going to talk about a job description of saints. let's start first with the definition. let 's call it out: What is a saint? Well, the first question we have to ask is. By whose definition? Whose definition of a saint are we leaning into? Because there is a definition through the lens of church history. Primarily through the lens of the Catholic Church. How they've interpreted this word or maybe how this word has become a thing. And I think we wrestle with this in our subculture even to this day. What are saints? Well, many people think that they are deceased people who have attained an exceptional degree of holiness. And they're usually depicted in our artwork, especially the older artwork, as uh, people with bright halos around their heads. And a few years ago, the the, the, the Pope canonized uh, another 802 saints. And this brings the total number of officially Catholic church uh, canonized saints to over 10,000. They're recognized as being so close to God that they can ask him for favors to help the living. And they're esteemed as role models for the living, worthy to be venerated publicly with special services held every year, or even by having churches, or maybe even shrines built. In their honor. Here's the thing through that lens it's not easy to be canonized as a saint. The process begins five years after the person's death. They must go through 15 stages of inquiry concerning their life and their death and the miracles that happened while they were alive. And in this process, they're designated first as a servant of God and then later decreed to be a venerable servant. And then they're beautified as a blessed servant before they're finally canonized as a full fledged saint. Some have taken about 50 years to become saints, but others have taken as long as, get this, 600 years to be recognized as a saint. And some, through that lens of church history, specifically the Catholic Church, they've lost their sainthood because it was discovered that the basis for naming them as a saint to begin with was nothing more than myths and legends. Does that sound confusing? It is a bit confusing. And I think this great confusion, well, this is because it's creating this special class of Christians. By the way, this is not the way the Bible uses that word. Specifically, this is not the way that the Apostle Paul uses this word. We're going to unpack that word here in a second, but you might go there right now. I mean, we're going to spend some time today in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll start with verse 1. Maybe just kind of stick your finger right there. We'll come back to that passage a bit later. But first, let's define what does the Bible have to say about that word saint, What's the biblical definition? It's probably a pretty good place to start. How does the Roman Catholic understanding of saints compare with the biblical teaching? Well, not very well. In church history, especially the Middle Ages, primarily Roman Catholic theology at that point, the saints are in heaven. But in the Bible, hear me, the saints are on earth. In Roman Catholic teaching, a person does not become a saint unless he or she is beautified or canonized by the Pope or maybe even a prominent bishop, but in the Bible, hear me, everyone who has received Jesus Christ by faith is a saint. In Roman Catholic practice, the saints are revered, they're prayed to, and in some instances, in my opinion, they're worshipped. In the Bible, though, saints are called, they're called themselves to revere God, to worship God, and to pray to God alone. The Bible does teach us about saints. What we want to know then is this. How does one become a saint? Well, the answer to that is God's call on your life. This is what makes you a saint. No church council or pope has the authority to determine who a saint is and who is not a saint. That's God's prerogative. And the Bible teaches that every true believer is a saint. Romans chapter 16, check it out. goes like this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. Phoebe is a gal who lived in the area that this letter is being written to, a servant of the church in Centuria. This is kind of like Jenny who hosted a bit ago here on the platform. If I were to write a letter from somewhere else back to the church here in Carmel, Indiana, I would commend to you Jenny. She's a servant. She's a sister in Christ. She's a saint, just like y'all. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to res- and to give her any help she may need from you for she has been a great help to many people including me philippians chapter 1 here's another usage of that word The beginning of the letter, written from a Roman jail cell, in my opinion, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. And he signs the letter right up at the top. This is the custom of the day. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, they're the ones writing the letter. To who? He addresses the letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, the elders and the deacons of the church. And he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses that word, saints, In all these letters that get written and are a part of our New Testament scriptures, he uses that word about 40 times. He calls them out as saints. He almost always uses it in the plural. He's talking about the plurality of believers. He's not calling out individual people, he's saying, all y'all, the body of believers, the saints. The only time, actually, that it's singular, kind of, is actually at the end of that book, Philippians chapter 4, verse 21. Check this out. He says, and it still kind of has a plural feel to it, greet every saint, all y'all, in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me, well, they send their greetings to you as well. One saint to another. This is the biblical definition of what it means to be a saint. But the question is, are we living up to it? On this All Saints Eve, this would be a good time to ask the question How am I doing? Am I meeting the requirements of this job description? To be a saint. So, if you're taking notes, let's dial that in. Let's talk about the job description of being a saint. And what I want to do any good job description starts with kind of a, a high level overview, a couple paragraphs saying this is really kind of what your job is. And then you kind of get into some of the bullet points of the details. This is how I want to approach this topic. Let's start first with the overall job description brief. And then I'm going to give you three specific bullet points. But here's the overall description The word saint comes from a Greek word. And the Greek word is the word hagias, which means consecrated to God. It also means holy. Let's put that up. Sacred. And it means pious. I don't know about you, but I look at that. And I think it's easy to see how we have come up with this spectrum of saints and sinners. I think it's possible looking at that to see, oh, well, they, these are people who have to be venerated. as some. Kind. I mean, pious? I don't know if that's me. Holy, not always. Sacred, not always. I do want to live my life consecrated to God, but I struggle with sin, and I bet you do as well. Here's the thing again, when Jesus looks at me, he looks through the work, the redemptive work that he's done on the cross, and he sees somebody who's doing their level best to live their life for God. He sees a saint. There, uh, this word has this idea of being set apart. There are several references to what the godly character of saints should look like. We just looked at one in Romans chapter 16. Let's put that up again. Romans 16 verse 2 says this, uh, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. Again, talking about Phoebe here. But there is a manner that's worthy of this idea of being called a saint. Well, what is that? There are other passages that define this. Like Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So part of being a saint means you roll up your sleeves and you serve the local body of Christ. And then in turn, you want to build up what God is doing to advance his kingdom to push that out even further. Here's another description in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. This is why it's so important every week we do what we just did. We bow our heads and we close our eyes and we do an audit of the job description. During communion, we ask God, oh, was there a hint this past week of immorality? Was there a hint in my life of impurity? Did I wrestle with any greed? Are there sin issues that need to be dealt with? Am I hitting, am I living up to the job description of saint that you've called me toward? Because there's a high standard here. Scripturally speaking, the saints are the body of Christ. They're Christians. They're the church. And all Christians are considered saints. And all Christians are saints. And at the same time, they're called to be saints. But the question is, do we live like that? Do we live like saints? I was listening to a podcast this past week. Do you remember the 1990s pop icon singer Jewel? She's quite the artist. I listened to this podcast. She was telling the story of her life. There's a a show, I haven't watched it, but I think it's on the History Channel maybe or Discovery Channel, one of these, that details her dad. These people that live up in uh, Alaska and they kind of go off and they do this thing off the grid. This is how she grew up. And she was telling some stories about a fairly dysfunctional childhood. But she told a story about this day she's looking out, and they had this chicken coop. And for some reason, they had had a rabbit, a bunny rabbit, born into the chicken coop. And it confused itself. It thought it was a chicken. And it spent its whole life out there just kind of pecking at the ground like it saw the chickens doing. A little bit weird, right? I think this is worth rustling through. Are you living like a saint? As we define this, maybe you need to ask yourself this question. Are you living like a saint and you're not one yet? In other words, you have not placed your trust in Jesus Christ. You haven't put your allegiance. You're not living close to the cross yet. If that's you, after the service, I'd love to meet you under the cross and talk to you about this and help you make those important action steps of faith. Or maybe the flip side is true as well. You're called a saint, But it's time to put that sainthood on display, to take your light and shine it outwards because there's a world out there that's desperate to see Jesus in you and through you. And church, he's calling on his saints to do just that. If you want to open up your Bible, we're going to camp out the rest of the time in First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. It puts it very clearly here. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who are in every place, and they call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Some translations here. For this word, saints, they actually insert the word holy. The words sanctified and holy come from the same Greek root as the word that's commonly translated saints. Christians are saints, virtue of their connection with Jesus Christ. Christians are called to be saints, to increasingly allow their daily life to more closely match their position in Christ. This is the biblical description, and this is the calling of saints. I couldn't help but think about Corinth when we were out in Vegas. Because actually, first century Corinth, well, it was the sin city of its day. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happened in Corinth... Well, I don't know, it didn't completely stay there because there were writers even in the first century that were describing the level of sin that was on display in Corinth. First century writer Strabo concerned uh, Corinth and he described uh, what it was like in Paul's day. He said it was a wealthy port city, not just because of where it was located between Asia and Italy, but also because of what it was selling. These are his words. It's Temple of Aphrodite, this is the goddess of love, was so rich that it owned more than 1,000 temple slaves, courtesans. Does that mean what we think it means? Yeah. "...whom both men and women had dedicated to the goddess. And therefore, it was also on account of these women, these are temple prostitutes, just so there's no mistake, that the city was crowded with people and grew rich. For instance, the ship captains freely squandered their money in the temple brothels, and hence the common proverb that was known during that day, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth." What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Not everybody can handle what's going on in Corinth. Oh, be careful. You little sinners. This is kind of the vibe that's going on in the day. So notorious for its sexual sin was Corinth that one of the Greek words for fornication was Corinthia zamai Do you hear Corinth in there? In other words, a sexual sin is Corinthian. There's this idea in Christian subculture. we got to avoid all that stuff, which is True. We're called to flee from darkness. We're called to set boundaries, personal boundaries, on our sin issues, our personal issues. But notice, if you read through the book of 1 Corinthians or its sequel, 2 Corinthians, Paul doesn't tell them to get the heck out of Dodge. He doesn't say, well, pack up your bags and move out of sin city. Uh-uh. He says, roll up your sleeves, you're saints, and I've called you to live like that. Draw personal boundaries. Don't live in a lifestyle of sin, but rather take the light that God puts in you and shine it outwards to a world that's desperately needing to see himself through you. They need to see Jesus. This idea of light and darkness, this is a theme all throughout scripture. Isaiah chapter nine gives this promise. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them forecasting. Hope is coming. Jesus actually is kind of referred to in this passage as the realization of this Isaiah prophecy. In Matthew chapter 4, this is right before the Sermon on the Mount, this is describing Jesus. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. This is the person of Jesus himself, and we're designed. Oh, Christians, saints, we're supposed to let him shine through us. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness didn't even comprehend it. They couldn't understand what just hit them. We're called to move from light to darkness and to shine that outward so that the whole world can see Jesus in us and through us. Jesus said it very clearly, saints, hear me. He was speaking to you when he said, you're, uh, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, neither do people light a lamp and stick it under a bowl. No, 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 They stick it up in a prominent place in the house so that the whole house may be illuminated by it. And then he says, in the same way, let your light shine before men. Why? So that they may see your good works. Why? So that they may praise your Father in heaven. 1 Peter chapter 2 puts it this way, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, as we study this passage, we're going to learn what our response to this should be. This is the saint job description. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. junior high was hard for Sosthenes, I'm guessing, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be, to be holy. Another translation would use the word there, saints. Together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, write this down. Our saint job description is first of all to appreciate the honor of being called saints. It is an honor. It's a privilege. This is a high privilege that we don't deserve. Paul was determined to make this truth clear to the Corinthians. Almost all that he wrote in this epistle deals with wrong doctrine, And with bad sin behavior, this church was in a sorry state. It was troubled by serious problems like division and scandals and affairs and pride. and They were even messing in some fairly profound ways with the Lord's Supper. Of all the churches that Paul ministered to, none were as problematic as the church in Corinth. How could a group of people who were so rife with spiritual and moral problems be called saints? That's exactly what the believers were because God called them saints even though they didn't deserve it. They were holy in God's sight regardless of their spiritual and moral problems. This doesn't mean that every single member of the church was a saint. There were probably some in the church who were not true believers. They weren't saints at all. But those who had truly believed in Christ were saints because they had been, that word we just read, they had been sanctified in Christ at the moment that they were saved. This sanctification that we just read in verse 2, it refers to the believer's position in Christ, was not their work. They didn't do that. Jesus did that. It was given them entirely by God's grace alone. One example of that we just read about him is Sosthenes. He's mentioned in First 1, get this, as a co-author of the epistle, and he's a fellow brother in Christ. However, Sosthenes was formerly not a fellow brother, but he was a persecutor of the faith, and he hated Christ. This is what we know about him in Acts chapter 18. Check this out. While Gallio was pro-council of Achaia. This is the region that Corinth, that we're reading about, was located in. The Jews made a unified attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. So he had them, if you skip down a few verses, that proconsul had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Sosthenes was the ringleader of a rioting mob of Jews that tried to harm Paul's ministry in the church by accusing him before the Roman governor but his plan backfired when the Roman governor refused to entertain the charges brought against Paul. Sosthenes was beaten up and there's nothing more mentioned about him until his name appears here in the first verse of Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. Now he is called, quote, our brother. And so he is also a saint like Paul and the Corinthians. Well, how can this be? Something must have brought about this radical change In Sosthenes, after his plan to disrupt Paul's ministry in Corinth had failed, he was probably shattered and humiliated. But by the time that Paul wrote the epistle, he's honored as a saint, and his salvation brings about the wonderful nature of God's grace. It changes our standing from sinners to saints. Remember, there's a fine line between sinners and saints it's the cross of Christ. The pure holiness of Jesus Christ is granted to everyone who believes in Christ, and that makes us saints in the eyes of God. And this is important to make it as a point for us to remember the holy calling that we have, this is gonna compel you to live up to your calling as saints, even in the midst of a sinful world. That word sanctification is a big deal. This is process-oriented. He's calling us not just to be saved, but to grow in our salvation, to grow in our identity. We're moving toward something more and more closer to the cross of Christ. If you're taking notes, the second point on that saint job description is to anticipate the perfection of being made saints. Anticipate the perfection. That word is chosen carefully. Let's read a little bit deeper. Verse 4, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way. And all your speaking and all your knowledge. Because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gifts as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end. Saints, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Process-oriented. There's perfection at the end. But between now and then, he's growing us more and more in this job description. And as we lean more and more into that job description to be more like him, oh my goodness, he's got great things in store for your life. If you're taking notes, write this down. Your third bullet point on there is to adore the person who calls us and makes us saints. Let's go back one slide there. I've got a verse I want to show you. This is where we pull this from. For those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let's hit that point again. We adore the person who calls us and makes us saints that, because that verse is calling out worship. It's calling out not just what we did a few minutes ago. I mean, we did, we raise our hands and we praise our God But it's calling out a lifestyle of worship as well. The Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 kind of lifestyle of worship, which says, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, brothers and sisters, Paul said, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship, a living sacrifice. The problem with a living sacrifice, though, is the pesky propensity of the sacrificed to want to climb off of the altar. We're called to be living sacrifices. We walk around, our whole lifestyle is an act of worship before our God. We're called to adore the person who calls us and makes us saints. That person, of course, is Jesus Christ himself. Who's faithful, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9 says, God who has called you into fellowship with his Son Jesus Christ our Lord, he's faithful. We follow him. And the closer we live to that cross of Christ, the closer we align with our job description to be saints. Some of you you're here today, and um You've not stepped into that saving relationship with Jesus yet. Man, if that's you, after the service is done, I'd love nothing more than to meet you under the cross and to pray with you and help you with some next steps of faith and get you started on the beautiful faith journey that my God is calling you into. For the rest of us, can I send us out with a bit of a caution? Here's the caution. There's no impact without contact. As we've talked about, a saint, we're called to shine our light outwards, that Jesus would be seen in us and through us. But there's no impact to the world out there without, without some contact. Yesterday, Dawn and I uh, had the privilege of, I was asked to officiate a, a wedding, I'm a beautiful young couple in our church, and it was so fun to launch them into their, their married life, and that was a, all kinds of fun. It was a party. It was a celebration. And I loved doing that, but I was double booked that day. At the same time, we had a cool thing happening out here on our back lawn. Some of you were a part of this. It was our trunk or treat. We planned for like 300 people, we had about 1,000 people show up to this. It was pretty cool. I saw pictures, it looked awesome, it looked incredible. This tension between Halloween what, is a, what, what does a saint do with Halloween, All Saints' Eve? Might I suggest to you there's no impact without contact. It would be our hope, it would be our dream that some of the folks who play in our backyard come and join us sometime in the living room. It would be my hope and my dream, even something like Halloween, maybe you grew up in a culture, a Christian subculture that said, well, let's kind of leave that to the pagans. We're holy and pious and we'll stay over here. Don't leave some influence on the table. Don't leave influence for Jesus on the table. This past week, I heard somebody telling a story about a gal in our church. Her name is Sandy. And he was basically saying, make sure you go to Sandy's house for Halloween because Sandy is the big candy bar lady. (laughs) Stop by her house. She hands out full-size candy bars. After the service, I was talking to another guy here at our church named Eric, and he told me he's got this tradition every year where he grills like two or 300 hot dogs. And everybody that comes past his house, whether they're adults or kids alike, they get a hot dog if they want one. I love that. Don't be the weird Christian today that shuts your door, turns your light off. Bah, humbug. That's a pagan holiday. Don't leave influence on the table because there's no impact without contact. Would you stand up with me now? I want to send us out of here today into our mission field. I want to pray over us. I want to pray what God's going to do in us and through us this week. Because hear me, hear me, hear me. You're a saint. Go let your light shine. Be a saint, not just inside the cloister of the church building, but be a saint out in the world where the world desperately needs to see Jesus in you and through you. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather. We thank you for the ecclesia, the assembly of the saints, the called out ones. God, I pray for us as we step into our mission field that you use us even in a moment tonight. Maybe there's an opportunity with somebody in our neighborhood where we can smile. We can be Jesus in that moment. Would you use us, and would you, your Holy Spirit, inside us, quicken us toward that end? God, we love you. We worship you. We seek to put our lives on display as an act of worship for you this week, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. God bless you, Venture. Have a great week. We'll see you back again next Sunday.